Good morning. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, we wish to see Jesus. By your Spirit's power, give us eyes to see his glory. Through Christ we pray. Amen. The scripture reading this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and right righteousness. For that time on, and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much, Karin. You know, we say that um, little refrain after we read scripture on Sundays, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. And it's easy for that to become rote or trite and just something we say without even thinking about it, but uh, we really have a lot to be thankful for with God's word. That God has spoken, he's actually spoken to us in his word. Um, when you really start thinking about it, it almost sounds fantastic, like, like, like too good to be true. And yet, God has spoken to us in his word. So I hope that even those words don't become rote or just kind of an empty ritual. I hope they really become a a cry of our heart, thank you, God, that you have given us your word. Here's why, because we need God's word. And Karin just read, we've been, we've, we're spending all December in Isaiah, these first seven verses of Isaiah chapter nine, and it names so much of what we even feel. You know, there are people who say, oh, the Bible is an old, outdated, musty, kind of irrelevant book, to which I would say, have you read it? The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Does anybody feel like they're walking in darkness? On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Does anybody feel like they're living in the land of the shadow of death? And yet those walking in darkness have seen a light. And those living in the land of the shadow of death or on those, a light has dawned. The good news of the Bible, and this is why it's such good news, is that it both names 
the hard reality of life and it gives us something to look towards. That's really what Advent is about as we've been thinking about Advent. That we actually, it's, it's important for us to name the darkness in life and to not just try to gloss over it or pretend like it doesn't exist. There are people, I was reminded of this in a brief conversation just this morning with one of you, there are people for whom the season leading up to Christmas is a dark and difficult season for all sorts of different reasons. And there can be this disconnect when, when the stores are filled with lights and displays and, and all of our neighbors have those you know, obnoxious, giant, blow-up things. I hope that's none of you. And, and everybody, you know, in the music, and everybody is just feeling or looking like they're feeling so good. And then some of us are like, I'm not feeling all that good. What's wrong with me? The answer to that is Advent, where we name what's really going on and where we look to the hope and the light and the peace that God promises. There are four traditional themes in Advent that churches for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years have meditated on in the four weeks leading up to um, Christmas in the Advent season. And they are in order, hope, peace, joy, and love. Now we're in week two, and so we're thinking about peace this morning. And peace is kind of a funny word. You know, we hear, we hear peace. If, um, maybe some of you remember, though, it's not so much a stereotype anymore, but remember the old stereotype of the, the Miss America pageant winner, and what did she always say? I want to work for world peace. And everybody went, yeah, right. Not just because world peace is unrealistic for, like, you, of all people, but we think of peace, and we often have that sense of peace when we think about peace. We think it just means that that there's no conflict, there's no war, there's no whatever. And those are true. Like, that's part of peace. But, but peace actually means so much more than that. So this morning as we think about peace, we have to start here. That in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace, many of you may know this, is shalom. And shalom is not defined by what there isn't, but by what there is. We think peace means there isn't war. There isn't conflict. And again, those are true, but shalom means something much more than that. It, it implies a fullness. It implies a flourishing. Shalom in the Bible, peace in the Bible means everything is as it should be. I was sitting, uh, I still remember, I was a young teenager and I was sitting around the Thanksgiving table one year with our family. This is when my grandparents were alive. And my grandfather was sitting at the head of the table. He was pretty old. He couldn't hear. He, could, he just couldn't really keep up. And, and our whole family is carrying on and laughing and having a great time around the, fa- the table. And in the middle of the conversation, he quietly interrupted everybody. And he was the kind of man, and maybe some of you have parents or grandparents like this, they just had to speak very quietly and everybody shut up and listened to them. He was this kind of man. And so he kind of interrupted And everybody stopped and leaned in. And he told the whole family, he said, I know I can't hear that well. And I don't even know what y'all are laughing about right now. (laughs) But I can see that you're all laughing and you're all having a great time. And I am so filled with joy to see you enjoying one another and loving one another in this moment. That's a picture of shalom. Shalom. 
Everything is as it should be. It's peace, peace does not mean an emptiness of conflict. It means a fullness of life, a flourishing. That's what God has for us. All is as all should be. That's what God promises us. We even see this in the text. He shall be called what? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But here's where the disconnect occurs because so many of us go through life and we realize that God promises that all will be as all should be and yet all is not as all should be. And how do we reconcile the dissonance between those two notes? We have family trouble, we have, we have anxiety just within ourselves. I mean, you can, you can hardly open a newspaper. Um, does anybody even open a newspaper anymore? You can hardly open your Apple News feed without seeing some reminder that all is not as all should be in the world. And so we have this dissonance. We have two notes that don't seem to be playing very well together. That God promises peace and yet we look around us and we don't see it. How do we reconcile that? This is where Isaiah points us and he says this, this famous verse, we hear it every Christmas, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This Advent season, we're considering each of those four titles that Isaiah assigns to the Messiah, whom we call Jesus. They tie in perfectly with the four themes of Advent. And we're looking for the glimmers of hope, even in the darkness. Now, when we think about peace, most commentators will point out that Isaiah is describing a really fully orbed, holistic peace. He's describing both a societal peace, kind of among nations, even a, a geopolitical peace, and he's describing an interior personal peace. And this morning, I'm, I'm just going to leave the politi- geopolitical, the national stuff, the world stuff on the table and not touch it, not because I don't want to, but because there just isn't time. There just isn't time. And I think... This is just my hunch, and I could be wrong, but I think a lot of us would frankly benefit more from meditating on the internal peace that God offers each of us. So I'm going to leave certain questions unanswered, I know. And if you want to talk later, let's talk, let's talk later about the other aspects of peace that God promises. But we all experience kind of inner turmoil, don't we? And so this morning, I want to consider how Jesus offers us peace in our inner turmoil in two specific domains that we all tend to wrestle through. One is the domain of worry, and one is a domain, this is an even more personal one, of shame. We're going to consider how God promises peace that answers and that is kind of the antidote to our worry and our shame. Let's think first about our worry. Worry is, just, um, worry is just when we're afraid of an unknown future. I don't know what's going to happen. I know and I'm starting to realize I can't control the future and that's a scary thought, isn't it? When you realize you actually can't, as hard as we try, you actually can't control the future and so we worry. How come I've been so sluggish the past few months? 
how in the world do I afford to send my kids to college? What is this test going to show that the doctor ordered? And the results haven't come in yet, and I'm still waiting. On the outside, my life seems to be fine, so why am I down? And I don't even know why I'm so down. I just am. There are all of these little worries that we all deal with. I, they're not actually little. I shouldn't have said that. And we spent the, the two weeks on either side of Thanksgiving thinking about anxiety a little bit more deeply, so I won't recap all of that. But let me just point you to the promise that Isaiah makes in the midst of all of our worry. He says, there is coming a prince of peace. He will bring with him shalom, a fullness, a flourishing all will be as all should be. Here's one place he promises that. If you have your Bible, look at verse four. He says, in the day, just as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Now, if you've forgotten who Midian is, no judgment, I will remind you. Early in the Old Testament book of Judges, there's a group of people called the Midianites, And a lot of times they're just called by the name of the person who was their leader. So when you see Midian and the Midianites, those are synonymous. And the Midianites, early in Judges, are harassing God's people, the Israelites. And God raises up the most unexpected leader, a man named Gideon, to lead his people and defeat the Midianites, to set them free. And it's really important. So actually, even though Isaiah never mentions Gideon, he's talking about Gideon. And every, every good Jew knew, like, when you hear Midian, you're thinking Gideon. I don't know. It's just convenient that it rhymes, too. And it's so important to remember Gideon because he's the least impressive leader you've ever met. You have not met a less impressive leader than Gideon. And some of you in leadership roles right now, <laughs> some of you in leadership roles right now can identify with Gideon because he is feeling world-class imposter syndrome. Anybody ever felt that? Like, I'm so out of my depth right now. He's too young. He has no experience. His family is a bunch of nobodies. He has no personal connections, no good mentors. He has no training. And God tells him, you're my guy. And Midian talks right back to God, and he says, no, I'm not. (laughs) Which is a pretty bold move, like to talk back to God. And God doesn't turn Midian, or Gideon excuse me, into a little pile of ashes. He's merciful because Midian says, you got the wrong guy. Like, I'm weak. I don't have the training. I don't know what I'm doing. And God says, I know. That's why I chose you. I chose you so that everybody will see what comes and say, that had to be God. Because it's actually not about you, Gideon. It's actually not about you. And sure enough, if you read Judges, you see that Gideon leads this unlikely band of, uh, you can hardly even call them an army, and they defeat the Midianites. Now, why is God reminding his people so many hundreds of years later about Gideon and the Midianites? Because for all of Gideon's skepticism and worry and insistence that the future could not pan out this way, God used him in a powerful way. And he's reminding his people in Isaiah and he's reminding you and me today 
that your uncertainty is no obstacle to God. Your uncertainty about the future is no obstacle to God. A wise woman once told me, she said, and this has always stuck with me, she said, with God, we're on a need-to-know basis. I thought, oh, that's good. Because so often, I think I need to know. Just like my kids always think they need to know. But we don't. And believe it or not, and I know this is stunning and this is a leap of faith, God knows more than we know. He sees the big picture far more comprehensively than you or I see the big picture. And the more we absorb that conviction into our gut, the less we find ourselves worrying. Because God's got this. He says, I showed you that with Gideon and the Midianites. I'm going to show it to you now. This is about 730 or so BC when he wrote Isaiah. And he says the same to you and me today in 2023. See, our worry, we often worry so much. All is not as it should be. How can we fix this? And God says, I know. You're, you're right, actually. All isn't as it should be, but I am making it so. I am making it so. And I will bring a true and better Gideon, an even more unexpected Gideon, an even more unexpected leader for my people, and all will be as all should be when he comes. Now, God's plan usually doesn't make sense to us. In fact, God usually works in the exact opposite way we think he should. Paul reassures us of this in 1 Corinthians. I know I'm skipping way ahead to the New Testament here. He just says, you know, Paul's a pretty blunt, like, point-blank guy. Paul teaches us that God chooses the foolish things in this world to shame the wise. And so often in our wisdom, our wisdom, we think, God, that sounds foolish. But all will be as all should be, God promises. And so he displaces our worry. He's present with us in the worry. We can name it. And then he displaces it. Next, he displaces something that's even more fundamental, even more personal, even maybe a little more touchy and sensitive, which is our shame. And we see this right from the outset in verse one. Let me read this for you again. Nevertheless, Isaiah starts in chapter 9. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom. That's a good word. There will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, we start reading this. You know, when you get to the names in the Bible, like Zebulun and Naphtali, if you're anything like me, your eyes kind of glaze over and you think, like, I don't even know how to pronounce that. And so we just skip ahead to whatever's next. Anybody else? Just me? Okay, just me. Good. And that's normal, by the way. Like, when we don't know their language, we don't know the culture, we don't know the history, what does this even mean? This is a really good quick lesson, by the way. If you get to a word especially a name of a person or a place in the Bible that you don't understand, don't skip it, dig in deeper. It will always tell you something. It will always tell you something. Here's how I know. Because in about a thousand years, 
Somebody might come across an ancient document that starts in the days of Donald Trump. And in a thousand years, you know what they will say? Who? And they will skip on to the next section because they don't know the context. You and I know the context. And I know I'm treading on, on thin ice here because we feel differently. That's not the point. But the point is, when you and I hear in the days of Donald Trump, we know exactly what that means. In a thousand years, they probably won't. In 734 BC, they knew exactly what it meant when it said in the days of Zebulun and Naphtali, dot, dot, dot. They didn't have to skip over it. So let's dig into that instead of skipping over it. Most of your Bibles probably have maps in the back if you have a more modern Bible. They've got all of these maps. And if you look at the map, there's always, almost always there's a series of maps. One of them says the 12 tribes of Israel, or the, tw- the tribes, because it's kind of 13, depending on how you count. And look at the tribes of Israel, and you'll notice that two of the northernmost tribes geographically are, you guessed it, Zebulun and Naphtali. And in the late 8th century BC, now this is just historical fact, It's recounted in the Bible, but we know this from other sources as well. In the late 8th century BC, the Assyrian Empire came through and started devastating everybody in their path. They came from the north and started moving south. So who's first in their path? The two northernmost kingdoms or tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali. You can actually read about this. It happens in 2 Kings 15. And as you can as you can well imagine, like first, nobody wants to be conquered and nobody wants to be the first conquered, right? If I'm going down, I at least want other people to go down before me. Nobody wants to be the first. And we can imagine even a unique social shame for those tribes that they were the first to get run over. Now, as best as we can tell, Isaiah is writing this after Zebulun and Naphtali have been overrun, but before the rest of Israel gets overrun. But it does happen in about 722. It's the northern kingdom, southern kingdom in 586. So imagine Isaiah writing to these tribes how they're feeling in this season. Gloom is a pretty good word. And that's exactly how Isaiah starts. He says, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom. The Hebrew word for gloom describes pitch black. You ever been in an area that's like literally pitch black? There's not a shred of light. You can't even see your hand in front of your face. And in that setting, what does God promise? A ray of light. In fact, even before he talks about light in verses two and three, he promises it in verse one. Look what he says. He says, let me me go back and read it. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom, no more pitch black for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, Galilee is a word we think of when we think about Jesus. Jesus is often connected to Galilee. But if you flip a couple pages back in the map section of your Bible— you keep your thumb in the, in the 12 tribes map, and then you flip to the, the ministry, the life and ministry of Jesus map, and you overlay them over one another. You know what you see? That the tribes of Israel that are Zebulun and Naphtali 
are roughly equivalent with a region in Jesus' ministry called Galilee. Now, if you know about Jesus' ministry, if if you've been reading your Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and you see Galilee come up all the time, think about what happens in Galilee. Jesus' family is from Galilee. Jesus grows up in Galilee. Jesus performs his first miracle in Galilee. Jesus does most of his ministry in Galilee. He effectively ends his ministry in Galilee. After he's raised from the dead, but before he ascends, he tells his disciples to meet him, not in Jerusalem, the center of everything, but in Galilee. This is the very end of Matthew 28. He's killed in Jerusalem, in the center, in the thick, the cultural center, but he does all of his ministry in where? Galilee, also known as Zebulun and Naphtali. And do you see what's going on here? There is a unique shame in being the first conquered, and yet God gives them a unique honor in being the life, uh, excuse me, the birthplace and the setting for most of Jesus' ministry. And let's get even more, like this is even more astounding. Because God makes it abundantly clear in all of the prophets, every single one of them, that Israel will be overrun, and they will be overrun because of their disobedience. He's basically saying, you have brought this on yourself. And all of Israel eventually was overrun. Not just Zebulun and Naphtali, but every tribe. They were conquered, they were exiled, they were scattered because of their disobedience. They only have themselves to blame, God says. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles. Now you have to ask yourself, why? Does Israel suddenly become obedient and re-earn God's favor? If you know your history, you know that's not at all how the story goes. Why does God redeem his people? Strictly, strictly because of his mercy. God redeems his people. Listen to me closely here. God redeems his people because he is merciful. Not because of their obedience, not because of their behavior, not because of their morality, not because they got their act together, because he is merciful. That's it. Every area of shame in our life is some area where we feel like we should have done better, we should have shaped up, we should have spoken up and we didn't, or we shouldn't have spoken up and we did. It's an area where we don't feel like we measure up or where we're afraid that we're just not living up to expectations. To which God says, yes, name it. And that feeling of shame may be, and stick with me here, that may be a consequence of sin. But don't stop there. Because just as I honored Zebulun and Naphtali after their shame, I will honor you after your shame. Not because they shaped up and got their act together and not because you shaped up and got your act together, but because I am merciful. Full stop. 
In fact, I will send my son to cover and redeem the shame of Zebulun and Naphtali and you and me. I will make peace with you. Those areas in your heart where you sense that all is not as it should be, I will make all as it should be. And I will do it through one who will endure the most profound lack of peace that you can imagine. Remember, peace means all will be as all should be. Now, when Jesus hung on the cross, all certainly was not as it should be. We always ask this question. There's a question that kind of lingers in a lot of our minds, and it bothers a lot of us. And it's, it's not a bad question, but we often ask this. Why do good things, I'm sorry, why do bad things happen to good people? And so often when we ask that, we're kind of asking for, for ourselves why did this bad thing happen to me? You ever ask this question about the cross? Why did a bad thing, why did such a bad thing happen to such a good person? In fact, the only one who is good is God alone. And so how in the world could the worst possible thing happen to the best possible person, the only perfect person who ever lived? Because on the cross, let me assure you that all was not as all should be. And yet that was the only way to, to make all as it should be. The only way to make peace with God and us was for God to come in his mercy and it's just mercy, it's just mercy, was for God to come and to bear the worry and the shame and the sin of the world and of you and of me, the lack of peace, and to lift that burden from our shoulders. Isn't it something? Scripture is clear. Old and New Testaments, it says, it, we're the ones who have rejected God. God does not reject his people. We're the ones who have rejected God. Remember just last week, the Israelites demanded a human king instead of accepting God as their king. And now today we see Zebulun and Naphtali and the tribes of Israel who turned away from God and suffered the socio-political consequences. And it's you and I who get worried about the future and take matters into our own hands. We've turned from God, but God has not turned from us because he's merciful. Is that not good news? Isaiah is going to put it this way later in Isaiah in 53, so you've got to skip ahead like 46 more chapters. He says this, every one of us, we all, like sheep, have just gone astray. And every one of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, the good shepherd, the iniquity of us all. Our Prince of Peace suffered the most unimaginable lack of peace. The conflict, the worry, the shame, the anxiety, all of it in order to offer you and me peace. And so in Advent, in the darkness, we dare to dream of peace. Not a peace that we can make because we can't, but, but because he has. For to us a child is born. 
to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of, his increase, of, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And I love how it ends. The zeal of who? The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Amen.